Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We are bringing on the head coach at Dartmouth College, Reed Cashman, and Cash great hockey guy he grew up in red wing minnesota right outside of minneapolis played his junior hockey in the ushl for waterloo before playing at quinnipiac had a pretty good pro career spanning the echl and the ahl also played for a year over in europe before getting right into coaching where he coached at his alma mater at quinnipiac and he made it to a national championship there as a coach then he went on to coach at hershey in the ahl washington capitals in the nhl and now he has just passed his first year with dartmouth so awesome awesome hockey guy but before we do get over to cash let's bring on another awesome awesome hockey guy in a one jeffrey lavecchio vex what's shaking today my man not much bro tato just getting ready for the off-season push here you go. It's starting, eh? Grind time. We're starting up. Started with my first uh, first groups this week. Start or Monday. Start with my second group tomorrow. It's getting underway. So you're just balancing being dead dog tired with the excitement that you get to go and, and work out with your guys again, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I'm stoked. Getting the gym ready, buying a bunch of new equipment, got a bunch of new deals with different companies so that's been pretty exciting to be able to do that and get new equipment in for the guys and start programming with it but uh yeah it's, it's getting ready to be go time baby <laughs> i like it i like it well it's uh this was a great conversation with cash here just a great obviously a great hockey guy but but a great human too and i feel like there's a lot that came out of this episode that me you and everybody listening can really take and use in their own lives or coaching careers whatever it may be it's it's crazy you know there's some people in the hockey world that i mean it's probably like a lot of people you hear like oh he's a good guy he's a good guy about like cash like i've only heard like he's a great guy like people like it's like when people talk about you they they their voice changes (laughs) their inflection changes their tone changes like the the way that they speak about him so I was really excited to uh, to get him on. I won't lie, I wish I wasn't so damn tired right now. And I, I could have been a little more lively on this one, but it was fun just sitting back and listening to somebody with such a great hockey mind like him kind of talk about, you know, everything that he's been through. And what a cool story of how he got to coach in the NHL too. Like, I mean, it's just, I, you have to think that that had a lot to do with how he carried himself as a player and his reputation, you know, and you know, your reputation precedes you everywhere you go. It's such a small hockey world. So cool, uh, cool for him to be still, you know, young and have already accomplished so much in the game of hockey, both as a player and a coach. 
Yeah. I mean, one of the things we've talked about before that I think really rings true, especially in this situation with cash is like, you're almost always on an interview, you know, and, and he played for Todd Reardon in, in the AHL when, when Reardon was, was coaching there. And then when Reardon was in Hershey and and then in Washington, he was like, Hey, I want to bring this guy. And cash had a lot of success at, at Quinnipiac. And because of the way that he played, because of the way I'm sure he carried himself and how much he cared and stuff, it, it just, he was on an interview as a, as a 25 year old player playing in the AHL. Right. And, you know, he got the job at Quinnipiac because Rand loved him from when he was a player. So like, it's kind of similar with me. Like I got the job at Cornell. I played for shave. He wasn't going to hire me unless he, he had trust in me and my work ethic and things like that. So I just think like just the way you treat people, the way you carry yourself, people notice that for the good and the bad. Right. And so it's just, uh, it was, it was really cool for here to, for him to, to say that and for us to hear it just great kind of like wisdom. <laughs> yeah. And I love, I love that saying you're always on an interview. You know, I, I think that that, not that you should ever live like your life scared or, or nervous or anything, but just like always putting your best foot forward and um, treat know, people just... right, work hard, treat people right and work hard and, and good things potentially are going to happen. Maybe not on the time that you want them to happen, but if you treat people good, you care and, and, and you work hard at it, then typically things seem to work out for people that do those things. Right. Right. You know? Right. He's killing it. He's killing it. He is killing it. So many different uh, experiences that he was able to share, you know, talking about his time in Washington, coaching John Carlson, taking over a new division one program, you know, his time at Quinnipiac as a player and as a coach. So a lot of really good nuggets in here for people to take out of it. I certainly took some notes on, on the stuff that he was saying. So very, very, very cool stuff. Um, Before we do get over to cash, we do want to thank the people that allow us to continue to push this podcast and keep it going. We want to thank Gelsticks, our title sponsor, G-E-L-S-T-X.com. Go there, use the coupon code Think Tank One Word and get a discount on your weighted training sticks. It is getting to be the spring season. They also have lacrosse sticks. They also have golf clubs. So if you want to get better hockey, lacrosse, or golf, go to gelsticks.com and use the Think Tank coupon code. Get a little bit of a discount. Might as well. Everybody loves saving money. We could also thank, uh, we'd like to thank Train Heroic. That's the sick, sick, cleanest app in the world for online workouts. It's where I house all of my training. It's how I train all of the junior teams that I work with in organizations throughout the season. And off-season prep phase, the, the number one, uh, the, the, the first phase of the off-season workouts I put out. I already have tons of guys and girls using it. Phase two will be out soon, followed by phase three, phase four. Each phase builds upon itself. And I literally guarantee you that if you, are 13 years about or older and uh you're looking to get in the best shape of your life with the most detail most well-rounded off-ice training program i literally guarantee you uh mine will be it always there to help dm me anytime to the app video questions how is your form all that stuff it's always me answering i don't pay anyone to answer it's always me so thank you train heroic And we also want to thank icehockeysystems.com, the number one resource to get better as a coach or a player and even a parent now. And guys, we have some like incredible things coming up in the next couple of weeks and some announcements that we're going to make with ice hockey systems on hoping to change uh, the trajectory for some coaches and some organizations out there. And this partnership has been really, really cool between the hockey think tank and ice Uh, We've already partnered with them for an associations tab where you can get 
the full enchilada with icehockeysystems.com. I'm talking about thousands of drills, uh, drill drawing software. You can share it with your teams, with your coaches, with your parents um, all throughout. And they have access to the Hockey Think Tank Parent Survival Guide as well, not just educating the coaches, but educating the parents as well. Uh, so go to icehockeysystems.com. Look for the associations tab with that. We also have some big announcements coming up in the next couple of weeks on, on some more stuff that we're going to be doing together. And thank you, thank you, thank you, as always, to all of our amazing supporters. You guys are the reason why we continue to do this. Uh, if you can, to help us continue to grow, uh, shoot us a rating, shoot us a review, whether it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're getting your podcast today, helps legitimize us. And when people see a, a ton of those things, they, they think it's a, a legitimate podcast. And so the numbers continue to keep growing and, and continue to go through the roof. And when we started this three and a half years ago, couldn't imagine where it has gotten to now, 200 some odd episodes in. And so if you continue to help us by sharing us and, and doing those things, it just helps us to, to get into some more cars, some more earbuds, some more households, wherever you are when you listen to us. So we really appreciate those kinds of things. And, and this is going to be a great one with Reed Cashman, uh, phenomenal coach, phenomenal guy, a lot of different stuff that you can use within your own lives and your own careers, whether you're a coach, a manager, a leader, whatever it may be. So uh, without further ado, let's head on over to the head coach of Dartmouth College, Reed Cashman. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast up in beautiful Hanover, New Hampshire. He is the head coach at Dartmouth College, Reed Cashman. Cash, it's been a long time, man. How's everything going? Everything's great. Happy to be on here. A couple of old USHL rivals. (laughs) (laughs) USHL and for you and I, ECAC, both player and coach, freaking thorn in my side in both of them. So... Uh, looking forward to getting the secrets. See how I can beat you finally. <laughs> just, just so you know, when we, when I was at Quinnipiac coaching and we thought anytime there might be a fight, I always wanted Benny. I didn't think I could take you. I, I didn't, <laughs> if our staff fought, I was, I was going after Benny. I thought you low man would win. I, I didn't want anything to do with you. So that's how much I respect you. Low, low center of gravity for sure. But I, I'm pretty yeah. sure Shafe would have taken on your whole coaching staff. No doubt. Yeah, yeah. I definitely <laughs> would No doubt about that. Oh, man. That, those were some funny, funny times when it got heated between our coaching staff. So you and I are just kind of sitting there like, wow, this is uh, we're like the odd man out. <laughs> Those are fun, fun games. Um, but cool, man. Well, we're going to get into a, a ton of your journey here, but you know, you were on the East coast for, for a lot of your hockey and, and you played at Quinnipiac in Connecticut. Now you're coaching in New Hampshire, but you grew up in Minnesota and Red Wing, Minnesota, a little town in between the twin cities and, and Rochester. So if you can like, tell us a little bit about how you fell in love with the game and, and what it was like growing up playing hockey in Minnesota. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was so spoiled looking back on it now. Uh, my childhood and and really I had I have two older brothers and so by the time I got I got going I was just chasing them um my dad hates when I say this but my dad doesn't know how to skate he didn't play hockey uh, my mom taught us all how to skate and my oldest brother they just it was something for him to do and then he liked it and then 
my middle brother Brad liked it, and then by the time I got going, I I fell in love with it. And we had a pond in our um, in the park behind our house. Um, I spent most of my time skating outside, as cliche as that was growing up, um, and, ch- and again chasing chasing my brothers. And then I grew up in a small community where uh, I certainly I loved hockey, but I played every sport you can imagine. And like my senior year of high school, we played in the state championship game with the same kids that I played squirt hockey with when I was eight years old, same group of kids. And the majority of those kids played football in the fall. We played hockey in the winter and we played baseball in the spring. Um, and I didn't become a full-time hockey player until I was 19 years old. And I went down to Waterloo. And um, so it, it was never pushed on me. I, I grew up in this great environment where it was just sport and it was a sport I loved and competition I loved. And we had a group of us in town that, that loved it. And I didn't really embrace being a, a hockey player, right? Quote unquote until 19 or 20. And um, that's kind of how I fell in love with it and why. And it's been an amazing journey ever since. That's unreal, man. I mean, I feel like everybody that comes on from Minnesota has a very similar story. I feel like a lot of people have the the older brother story too. A lot of, a lot of younger siblings that have to compete for everything that they get. So maybe there's something to that too. But, you know, now that you're a head coach in college and you're a great recruiter when you're an assistant at, at Quinnipiac as well, um, how do you kind of go about because we talk about this a lot with youth hockey and the way that it is nowadays, like you, you very rarely see multiple sport athletes. It's funny, actually today, like we signed my daughter, she's four. We signed her up, signed her up for soccer and yeah. she also plays hockey. And it just so happened that like, they didn't tell us until like this week and it starts next week that it's on Wednesday, which is the same night as her hockey. And so she was all like upset that she couldn't go to hockey. She had to go to soccer, but right we have these conversations all the time, Vex, right? And I'm like, no, you got to go play soccer. Like you have to choose soccer over hockey sometimes, you know? And it's just a weird thing, but like, how do you kind of maybe talk to these families as, as a college coach, just about your experience and, and how it's just so different nowadays. And how do you kind of navigate that process with how hockey has become nowadays? Yeah, I, I guess I just, I try to be as honest as possible, which isn't always the, what parents or, or people want to hear. But the first thing I say is that the person that tells you they know the path, they're lying. Because not we don't know. We, we don't know the path. Like the three-sport athlete in high school in Minnesota or the kid that goes all in at eight years old and travels the world. Because like you can make it either direction. You, you, you really can. And you don't know every variable that's going to come up along the way. Um, and I think sometimes what I have found is, is um, families at times get premeditated on this is the path and I will, I will do anything to make sure I stay on this path. And I, I disagree with that philosophy. And I think you have to be flexible. And then the second thing I say is, in my opinion, every choice needs to be based around development. And sometimes maybe a 15 year old does have to leave their hometown because there is, because the development just isn't there. Um, the ability just isn't there. They're in a rural wherever. And there's a really good situation to go play at a, at an academy or a prep school or wherever. Um, but, but sometimes you, you should stay and, and learn how to be the guy and learn how to be a captain when you're 16 and, and 17 and 18 before you make that, that jump. And so as long as every, in my opinion, every decision is based around development and you understand there's pros and cons and you're going to have to live through some adversity either way, then I think you, you have a chance. And that's, those are my two main points. Um, Cause I, I don't, I don't have an answer. So if I try to get one, uh, I don't think that'd go so well. So how do we get more people to understand that there's like so much nuance between it? I mean, Tolf and I, 
it's so hard on a podcast and Twitter and the world of 120 characters and all that stuff. Like everybody's situation is different, but like if you had to give some, some ideas of, of things you need to think about before making these decisions, whether you should leave home at a young age, whether you should stay and, you know, maybe play at your level again and be the guy, be the guy who's going to run the power play, or should you play up a level? And maybe, you know, you're a third, fourth line guy. Like, what are some things you would say to, to parents and players that are kind of in those tight spots? Delete your social media. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard. Like, I, I can remember, guys, I can remember, uh, like, 16 years old, I was doing this, like, spring hockey Minnesota tournament showcase thing. And there's a kid, on, I, I don't remember his name, but I'll never forget, he had the Omaha Lancers bag tag on. And this kid was 16 years old, and he... He already had like he's already had played games in Omaha and the USHL and this is so pre-social media but I can remember sitting there being like oh my god like I, this kid's already made it I haven't made it like I and that was without social media and anxiety I can remember that anxiety as a 16 year old and there's there's no value in that right and and so the the message we have to get to families and, to, and the kids ultimately the kids have to make the decision it can't be the families the kids have to make it and they just have to be true to themselves and they have to make decisions that are that are best for themselves, and that's that's challenging um, when you're 16, regardless of your situation. But be 16, and then I'll put yourself in this in this world of hockey and social media, and there's so many people pulling and pulling and pulling. That, that's the challenge for our for us to empower young men in our scenario, but young men and young women in hockey to make decisions that are that are true to themselves and is their best path. Yeah. And I think something that you were alluding to earlier is really important where like, if you have a, a roadmap planned out of let's I think you mentioned eight years old or whatever, or the multi-sport, like things change, <laughs> things change on a journey and you're going to get punched in the face and you're going to get your knees taken out and you're going to have to face some stuff and, and things change. Plans change. I tore my ACL at 17 years old as a senior in high school in the first game of the season, like things changed and you have to work through it. And, and I think having like a flexibility to, to understand that my, my journey is going to go in all of these different ways that I didn't premeditate, you know, whether it's an injury, whether it's getting cut, whether it's, you know, maybe figuring out that being at home maybe isn't the best plan. Maybe it's figuring out that what's greener on the other side isn't the best plan either. And I should be staying home. So I, I think just that flexibility and the understanding of all these kids that are coming up and their parents, um, that things change and you got to roll with it. And like you said, just figure out where am I going to develop as a player and a, and a young man or a young woman, the best, who's the best coach that's going to challenge me and push me and, and make me better. Where's the best environment that, that I'm going to academically and athletically, uh, be, be satisfied and be fulfilled, you know? So there's so many different factors that go into it. And it's just, I, th I feel like people have this plan mapped out. Oh, I'm going to play, uh, midgets at 16 and then I'm going to play juniors at 17 and then I'm going to play division one at 18. And if I don't, then I'll maybe I'll go play juniors another year. And it's just like, man, like there's so many other things that go into it. that are out of your control. <laughs> yeah. And I, again, I, and you guys both know this, um, from your, your playing careers, but it, it really hit home my two years in Washington and, and maybe we'll get to that, but like the development never stops. Yeah. Like it never, like you, you making that midget team doesn't mean you made it. Are you making the USHL or V1 or even signing that first contract? What, like I'm watching the best players in the world continue to work at their craft. And so 
if you think like you have to get to a certain level, then that's it. Like you're never, you, the, the minute somebody quits developing in the NHL, they get passed by by somebody younger. And, um, so if we can just continue to educate people to make decisions based on, on development and holistic development, um, I just, that's, that's the message I think we have to get across in the, in the hockey world. I love that. I love that. Well, let's keep on this theme of development here because you were a defenseman. Uh, Vex Cash was a point of game as a defenseman and in college, you were a two-time All-American <laughs> at Quinnipiac. Uh, what did you say? Not a big deal. And you know, so I wanted to ask you, you know, we have a lot of coaches out here that are, are looking to obviously develop their players that listen to the podcast. You know, what are, what are maybe two or three habits or two or three things as a defenseman who had a lot of success, you know, as a defensive coach, who's, who's coached a bunch of unbelievable players that are playing in the NHL, whether it was, you know, the guys in Washington or you had Devon Taves, who's an un- unreal defenseman, Connor Clifton in Boston, you know, what are two or three things that you do with these guys or focus on with these guys that you think really led to their development? Recruited well, Uh, (laughs) but in all honesty, it's simple. Like it's, it's making like as a defenseman, right. And an elite defenseman, I believe this is my core has to make the simple play over and over again. And that's what these guys do like that. You want to watch like really watch John Carlson really break his game down. He makes more efficient passes than anybody in the, in anybody in the league. And he does it over and over again. And then he gets on the power play and he has an opportunity to play with those, those other four guys, but he, he puts it in Obi's wheelhouse and he uses deception to buy that extra split second. Um, and then two or three times a game, he has a chance to jump in the play and it puts something under the bar, which, now that, that's what makes him a superstar, but you have to be able to make those simple plays. And to do that, you have to be able to play with your eyes up and you have to be able to have the puck on your hip. Because if you do those two things, like just a D-man, if you can just get comfortable, we're talking offensively in all three zones, playing with your eyes up and playing with that puck just off your hip on your forehand, that enables you to scan the entire ice. It enables you to make a quick pass, make a sauce, evade on your backhand, uh, toter, like sometimes you do have to beat a guy and use a toe drag, but everything should start in a, in a very, it's like a, it's like baseball, right? It's that guy in the batter's box. Like everything starts at the same spot. And then depending where the ball is now, now the motion becomes a little different, but you have to have that foundation. And we're so quick to like jump ahead to go through 15 cones and, and do a million things. And, but if you don't have that base of being able to, play the game with your eyes up so you can scan and know that you have multiple options and you don't have the puck in a spot that you can utilize those options. You're, you're it's going to be really challenging to make it. And again, you know, you mentioned Devontae's that that's what Devon does. And now, now he's a world-class skater and he has some of these other attributes, but without that core foundation, it's, it's very challenging as a D man to make it. If you can't execute simplicity. So, so what are some things that you might do in practice, maybe in like a D skill session with some of these defensemen to give them some options and give them some, some drills to be able to, to make some of these simple plays, like what, take us through maybe like a, a little bit of a, a D skill session that you would run with some of these guys. So I think in, in Jason tapped did a really good job with this the last couple of years too at Dartmouth working with the D, but you know, the one thing that, that D-men don't get in practice is they don't get offensive blue line touches and they don't get uh, breakout touches. 
those are because as you're doing a team practice and even if you wanted them to get those reps, like you, you don't get as many as you need to. And then all of a sudden the game happens and the D-man's getting run through the glass and he doesn't execute and you're a coach. You're like, oh, like he's going to make that play. Like I can remember being that D-man. <laughs> and you haven't practiced I, it all week. In my mind, I'm like, <laughs> well, we haven't done one of these. We've just worked on our controlled breakouts all week. But now you're mad at me because I can't make a breakout pass. And, and so that's what that's kind of what everything is based off of is, is getting reps in those two spots. Offensive blue line, put them in different scenarios and breakouts. Um, you know, I got advice from Joe Pavalski, who I played with in Waterloo a while ago. And I'm like, Pav, like, what do you do? Like, what do you to work on all the stuff you work on? And he goes, I like to start at like the final product. So like wherever that final shot is or the tip or whatever, and do a bunch of those, like get pucks in that spot. And, and finish whatever I'm working on. And then he's like, I like to back it up three strides or three movements before that final play. So I do the final play a bunch, feel that. Then I go back it up three movements before that final play. And then I back it up, you know, five to seven, which is probably a little bit more work. So I don't do as many of those, but I just, I create these patterns that all of a sudden in the game, I've done this a whole bunch of times um, with the finishing product being done the most. And I've kind of adapted that, uh, adopted that a little bit like with breakouts, like, like work a ton on like the, the finish that you want and then back it up and work on your deception with your feet and then back it up. And let's talk about your shoulder checks and scanning before you get to that puck and you, and you make those things with your feet and that deception. Um, and that, that's been a pretty good philosophy through Tony Piak, Hershey, Washington, and, and now Dartmouth. That's really cool. Pavelski. I've heard so many unbelievable stories about him. I, I get pissed off at him a little bit because he ended my junior career. He basically put Waterloo on his back and beat us in the playoffs. I think that was a year after you left Yeah, yeah. Um, when they won the Clark cup. But yeah. um, what, what was it like playing with him? Because, you know, I tell a story when I do my team building stuff uh, about Pavelski, where him and I were actually line mates at the USHL all-star game, my, my last year playing and his last year playing. And it was just this crazy thing where we, were you know doing the whole all-star game thing where you do the pregame skate and everybody feels like an all-star or whatever and then while everybody else is off the ice who's the only guy that's still out there working on his game it's joe pavelski right and it's just like you don't think much of it at the time and there were actually some people that were like oh hey way to go johnny go hard like you know working hard in front of the scouts good for you or whatever and and i think about that now and i think about joel pavelski is going to go down as one of the greatest american hockey born players of of all time and then i don't remember the kids names who were making fun of him for for working on his game when everybody else felt like an all-star and he was what like a ninth round picked when there was nine rounds in the nhl 200 whatever And he passed everybody up because, because he's willing to stay on the ice and work on his game longer than everybody else. And Pavelski, like he can't even skate. Like he's a, he was a terrible skater. Now he's an average skater maybe, but just these little intangibles from all the work that he puts in has, has made him an incredible. And that's not to say he's not skilled and smart because he is very much of those things too. But like he sees it as a craft, I feel like. Like this is his craft. He's like an artist and he's always trying to work on it. And is that something that you saw in him when he was a player at, at 16, 17 years old? And has that translated now you've, you've been able to coach all these amazing players. Is that something that's been consistent with a lot of the, the best players that you've been able to coach and play with? Mm, well, I, w- I guess I would say like we were both rookies together in Waterloo and, and tender together. And he was coming from Plover, Wisconsin, small town, high school hockey. I was same thing, Minnesota high school hockey. Um, but it was pretty, pretty evident, even as a teammate, like his IQ was so elite. Yeah. Like, like, in, 
ridiculous, like off the charts. Um, and then you combine that with an elite work ethic. So we always, he always had those two things. And probably when we were teammates, I didn't really recognize it. And then you see him go off success at Wisco and you're like, okay. Um, and then more and more you've watched him. And then I, I trained with him a little bit in the summers early in our careers. Um, and those two things separate him like elite IQ, elite work ethic. So that his size was average. His skating was average, is average, but like borderline hall of famer um, and has won everywhere he's ever been. And uh, a funny story about him, like, and I don't know who the staff was at Wisconsin, so I don't know who I'm going to get in trouble, but like, they weren't going to take him. Like they, they didn't want, like, he was not hometown kid. They were not taking him. He was going to Mankato. Like he was done. And, and the way I've, that's been told to me is PK called Wisconsin. It's like, what are you doing? Like, oh, really? The Mankato. And then goes and wins a national tournament. And um, so that's what, that's where like, if anybody says someone's not big enough or they don't skate well enough or like, that's, that's just not true. Now you have to be elite with your IQ and your work ethic to counter um, your skating, but that's what Joe does. And he's very similar to, that's what Nick Backstrom is too. Yeah. Right. That's what, and Nick Backstrom's the same way from the standpoint of um, maybe not every pregame skate, but I would say two out of every three pregame skates. Nick Backstrom has a coach stand on the other on the other side of the zone and rim them twenty five to thirty pucks. Just rim them as hard as you can, and he just takes pucks off the half wall. And I think he's the best in the world at doing it, like on the power play because that's their release. It's just rim it over to nineteen, and he'll handle it. And he just takes it and he'll find a triangle. He'll poise. He'll know he can one touch it, but someone that's already the best at it at his age, he's just, he'd signed his big contract. He'd already won a cup. And he was still like, I'm telling you guys, like I was amazed how much he worked at. And that's what separates these guys. And, and then his IQ is, is the same thing where very, again, average skater, but he never, lost a race so we talked to our guys uh, at Dartmouth and I learned this from Washington staff and watching back he is it's rarely the the fastest guy in the race that wins it it's the guy that knows he's in the race first that's the guy that wins the race it's in hockey because it's the rink's too small like to, to make up that much space so if you know you're in the race before your opponent knows you're in the race you win it whether it's back checking whether it's a d-man makes the first pass and he jumps by the time that four realizes oh oh that's my guy too late. Doesn't matter how fast you are. And, and watch Nick. Like he doesn't lose races because he's so much smarter than everybody else. And he knows the race is happening before everybody else. And that's such a great. good point. Eh? Yeah, and that's that, cool. that, like when you're talking about those two guys reminds me of a guy who listens to like every podcast. So I'm sure I'll hear this is, is Paul Stasny. Like people said the same thing about him too, all grown up. And we've talked about him a lot on the podcast um, saying, Oh, he's not fast enough. Oh, he's not big enough. And it's like, all right, well, uh, you know, had pretty good junior career. Then he goes and wins at Denver. And then he's only been in the NHL, never played in the AHL and had an unbelievable career. But I also think that you're, he's one of those guys who knows he's in a race before anyone else does because his IQ is so elite. Yeah. And that's like, we try to work that with the guys that aren't as elite. Well, nobody's as elite as some of these guys we mentioned, but Again, like as a D-man, we make a breakout pass, like take your three strides. Now, now you don't have to worry about beating somebody up the ice because you're, you're in the race before the other guy. Or on the flip side, like if we turn a puck over, get going before you really know what's going on. So you, you're in that race before the other guy. It, you're, you're good. It doesn't have to. Yeah, we want our guys to be faster and stronger. And 
but that that mentality of winning races and knowing you're in the races um it was really cool though to pay more attention to the last couple of years and trying to bring that to our program right now did you yeah. see anything like being around guys like that that they did to work on their hockey iq guys that are that that high up like they already have it at that level yeah the only the um the thing I would say about that is they're those guys with that IQ and that, like Nick and John Carl at, at the NHL level, the guys I've dealt with that you, your people will recognize their names or, you know, John Carlson and, and TJ Oshie's like these guys really like, they like to talk about the game. And when you, when you talk hockey with them, it's, it's never like, Hey, how was the game last night? Oh, it was good. Or it, very generic answers. It's, it's very much like, man, in the second period and that guy came down the wall, like, if I just would have got it to my backhand, I, I, there was a lane there or so they, it's not like they, there's a, I've noticed them working on it, but you notice those guys, like when they talk hockey, they talk about it differently than, than the guys that don't think it at a high level. And they enjoy those conversations. Like they were awesome to coach. Cause it, it wasn't so much coaching. Like it was more like, I want to pick your brain. Like for me with the D like, Hey, John, can I pick your brain on this situation? Oh, wow. Like, okay. That's what you're seeing. Perfect. Thanks for helping me out. No, 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 I'll plan something around that. But that that's, I guess, the, what I would say about that. I think that's, a, it's a really hard skill, but I think those conversations, um, you know, help keep them engaged, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'll take it a step further, too, from a, a scouting recruiting perspective. I remember having a conversation with, uh, you probably know a Minnesota guy, John Rosso, who works for Tampa Bay, like, unbelievable guy, unbelievable scout. And he was telling me a story one time about, I actually think it was in Waterloo, to be honest with you. And he went down to go talk to Brock Besser after a game. And after speaking to Brock Besser about that game, he was like, this kid's going to be special just because of what you're saying. He just talked about it. He can recall different things that happened during the game. Hey, yeah, I should have made this play when I did this. Uh, Yeah. I remember making, you know, putting it through for the pass. Like, yeah, like that first goal was kind of on me. And it just, just like little things like that, where they just understand the game a little bit. And I wish kids would do that more and I feel like they don't do it a ton. Just being on a bench at the younger levels, at the youth level, it's just kind of like they get back and then they watch the game. <laughs> then yeah. it's their shift and they get back and they watch the game where like the higher the levels that you go up, the more conversations you're, you're seeing happen between the players and between line mates. Like I've, I've put a couple clips out there when the camera pans on the Marshawn, Pasternak, Bergeron sure. line. Yeah. They're always talking to each other. And, yeah. and I just think that's a really interesting thing for, and, and we should as coaches really facilitate that, uh, especially at the youth levels, because if we're sitting here talking to cash and Hey, that's a big thing is they just talk about the game differently. The understanding you can always pick something up. You can always learn something. And when you're on the same page with your line mates, even by, by being able to have those conversations, it just goes a long way in development. I, I also think we, it's, that's our job as coaches, I, whatever level to, to empower our players and, and, and also to um, teach them how to self-evaluate. And, and, and so now when they're evaluating any game, let's start with their game, make them be specific about, about what they're evaluating and not just base it on points or base it on win loss um, and not just let them get away with, Oh, pretty good. Or, Oh, you know, not, not the way I want to be or all the cliches, like probably I said to coaches, um, growing up, like 
we need to get these guys to athletes to, to be honest in their evaluations. And now all of a sudden that I, I do think we can teach players to see the game differently by helping them learn how to self-evaluate and be very honest. And that I think is where development really takes off because now all of a sudden you're not waiting for a coach to grab you and say, do this better. It's this coach has taught me how to self-evaluate. I can, I, I recognize either my mistake there, or I recognize I had success because it was based off of these habits and the result of the success doesn't really matter. It's these habits that led to that success. I like that feeling. I need to keep doing that. I need to keep winning that race. I need to keep having my stick on the ice. I need to keep tracking with the goalie at the net front. If I, you know, whatever it is, um, I, I think that's a major responsibility for us as coaches. And I, you know, I played for a lot of coaches because I didn't have a great career. Um, and the guys that are really good, really good coaches taught me how to evaluate myself, honestly, because I was very much like Quinnipiac. I had good coaches like Rand and Benny, but like I was point-based. If I had points, I was happy. If I didn't so, have points, wasn't. Let's go into that. How, what are some ways players need to think of to evaluate themselves, honestly? I think they need to have a foundation. That's three or four main points. You know, like for a, a defenseman at Dartmouth, which was the same for a defenseman at Washington, Washington and Hershey and then Quinnipiac, one of the major foundations is their stick detail, defending. Like if you can't defend with your stick, um, and have really good stick detail uh, and be detail, you know, be extremely detailed in it and know when to, you know, like dictate and initiate and where to put it. And it, there's, there's layers to that, but at the end of the game, you or at the end of a practice, a Dartmouth defenseman has to be able to go back to the game and be like, okay, like I broke up that rush because of my stick, I, that puck got through me because when I went to close, my stick was in the air. I took that penalty because I had two hands on my stick and I slashed the guy's hands. Like, uh, I broke up, you know, and, and now it's not as much. Uh, and sometimes it's, Hey, I got scored on the puck got through me, but I closed with my stick on the ice. I was moving my feet and you know what? A guy made a play. And in that case, like, why should you feel bad that a guy made a play against you if your habits were correct? Um, so that that's, that's one, like that's, that, that that's kind of one example I would say of how, um, we can hold these guys accountable in one way to that foundation of three or four key things. And then from there, like, I think every defenseman at, at Dartmouth and every forward has a basically the same three or four things. And then, then there's layers on top of that, right? Now you're senior, there's a leadership component to it. Now you're, uh, you know, go back to Washington. Like now John Carlson, he had to be a leader. He had to be great in the power play. Uh, he had to affect the game offensively, but like he could have eight or nine, right? Cause of the level he was at. Like this year at Dartmouth, we just started with with three, you know, and, and then you layer them on as guys get get comfortable and get more mature with them. So mom and dad listening to this, coaches listening to this, players obviously also listening to this. He, the first thing he did not say was points or the second thing or the third thing or the fourth thing. When you're evaluating yourself, like, yeah, points are great, but like that doesn't mean you played a good game. It doesn't mean you played a bad game. And I think a lot of times um, – you know, when you ask a younger player, oh, did you have a good game? The first thing they say is, I had two goals. And I said, that's not what I asked you. I said, did you play well? Or they didn't score and they're immediately down and like dejected. And they're like, I didn't have any points this weekend. I'm like, I didn't ask if you had points. I asked how you played, you know? Yeah. So mom and dad, when you're asking, 
you know, your player, like how they played and stuff. That's a good lesson that you need to like hammer into their little brains. Like you can play well without points and you can play badly with points, you know? So there's a lot of little things you could constantly be focusing on and reflecting on after games to decide, was that a good game? Was that a bad game and things like that. And I think that parents and coaches need to like really hammer kind of those ideas home um, because it seems like, with, with the rise of individual skill sessions and, um, you know, individual skill stuff all the time. It's the sport, unfortunately, is starting to go a little bit of the way of me, me, me versus, you know, being a team sport like it was for so long, I think. Yeah, and I, I guess just a, like ultimately to be an elite hockey player, you need to be highly efficient and highly consistent, right? Like you need to be able to make that play, whatever it is, and you have to be able to do it over and over again. And the only way to be those two things, efficient and consistent, is to be based around habits. Like, because anybody can make a play, right? Like, it, something can happen to them, puck and bounce to them, and they can make that play. But to be that efficient and that consistency. And I, I also, I, like, and I blame, or I don't blame us, but I, I think us as coaches and leaders and mentors need to take some ownership. And, well, what does a 16-year-old have at his disposal? He has a cell phone that gets, like, gets clips immediately. And not just your guys' clips, but most clips are just like the highlight reel. So if you watch the NHL recap, the highlight reel, all you see is that, that individual moment. And so that's what you want to emulate. What you don't see is the Connor McDavid had eight shifts before that where he was just consistent, 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 consistent. And that's what we have to all strive for. Um, and so, and that's, I, I don't blame kids as much as I, I think, us as coaches and leaders have to adapt and understand what knowledge they are getting. We can't blame them for getting that knowledge. I like watching the highlights too. So we have to work even harder to, to teach them the importance of, of some of the habits that, that allowed for those big time plays to happen. I love that. And I want to take that a little bit further because I remember a conversation I had with you at some point when we were both coaching in college and it, it really changed a lot of the way that I, I look at what we're talking about right now. And, and what you told me at that point is you're like, Tof, my job's Monday through Thursday. <laughs> my job's Monday through Thursday. That's my game day. And it's my job to develop the habits in my players that I'm coaching so they can go out and they can play free on Friday and Saturday night when, when it's game time. And they don't have to think. And I don't have to coach very much in terms of the individual side of things. And that, that just always really stuck with me because it's such a simple thing, but it's such a, a profoundly impactful thing. In, in, in our coaching is, is making sure like we really treat our practices like game days for us. Like that's our show. And I just like, I wanted to ask you that and, and ask you to kind of just expound on that a little bit more on your philosophy as it relates to, Hey, like practices is my job. Let's let the guys play free. Cause I feel like a, a lot of coaches, especially at the youth level, like you see coaches screaming all the time, you know, the remote control coaches that, that are telling where guys need to be at all different times during the game. Um, just talk about that philosophy a little bit, if you can. Yeah, I think it's, and it's, I guess I've said this probably a couple of times now, but everything is, is habit-based and, and you just form, I believe in forming habits and creating habits and then, and then letting those habits take over and and maybe it becomes instinct and when you play instinctual um the game also becomes faster you're not even playing faster you don't you don't you haven't gained any steps but all of a sudden you're a lot faster hockey player because because your habits allow you to do that um i, I also think we coach um the way 
we all had experiences with coaches, right? Like I had some amazing experience with some people. Like I was so fortunate, some of the people I played for, but I also played for and was in some scenarios where I, I, I didn't love how I was coached or, um, and so, and then you get a chance to be a coach. And to me, I try to take the, the things I really love from people um, while being true to myself. But then I also, how did I, how do I want to be coached as a, how did I want to be coached? Um, and I always struggled with um, the constant feedback, right? Like, especially when it was result-based, especially when it was, you, you had to be five feet, five feet over there, or um, like this one, this one crushed me because I had terrible feet, right? I don't, like I was, I'm a terrible skater. Still, I'm a terrible skater. <laughs> and I would get beat, right? As defensemen get beat. The best players in the world. You watch highlights, Victor Hedman gets beat every once in a while, right? That's what happens. That's hockey. But I would get beat and I would, I would have a coach that say, you got to gap up, right? Got to gap up, too slow. And at the time I was like, okay, that's kind of normal. That's what a coach does. But then I got into coaching. I was like, well, how did that help me? Like, what, what is that? I mean, I know what it means to have better gap, but you didn't, you haven't given me any tools to create, to establish gap. Like that, another one of our foundation facts is, is, is establishing gap. Like we should always be establishing gap. And how do you do that? Well, you take three to five strides, you, um, you're in the rush and then you, you scan the puck. And so now you either keep going in the rush or your gaps already established. Uh, you hold the offensive blue line until you're forced out, right? You don't just bail. Like, how do you establish gap? And so that always uh, stuck with me because I wish um, I thought I could have been helped with my skill set with giving been given tools and some different habits that would have allowed me to maximize my skating. Um, and so that that's really where my coaching comes from is, is those experiences and where like I'll never ever tell a kid to gap up because I don't think I will I will a lot of what we do guys is is we'll go back it's kind of the path thing, but we'll go back three to eight seconds on almost every clip. And that's what we teach. We teach that three to eight seconds before we, we rarely teach the final product. And, um, and if you go to those three to eight seconds before the actual moment, that's where you either cheated it or you're honest about it. And uh, that's, that's what we try to focus on. That's really interesting. It goes back to the being process oriented that you were talking about with the stick detail earlier, like you could have done everything right. And the guy just made a play. If yeah, you, yeah, if you rewind it three to eight seconds back, you see the foundation of, of the thought process of what they're processing in, in what they're seeing in the game. You're seeing that the habits, whether they did them or whether they didn't do them. And now you can actually give them some critical feedback where they can have some habit changing as opposed to like, didn't get the job done. You suck. (laughs) Or you did get the job done. And, but it's like, Hey, you got it done here, but maybe you were a little bit lucky too. Like it goes both ways. And, and I just think that's awesome advice. I think that's great. This game is so challenging. Like it's the other five guys on the ice are trying to do the opposite of what you're trying to do. Like we're going a million miles per hour. Like it can hit a stanchion in the glass. It can hit a shin pad. It can hit a, like, it's, it's not, football where you just get to stop and reset it's not baseball this is this is a game that's built around mistakes and taking advantage of mistakes or breaking the chain of events so one mistake doesn't turn into three or four that turns into a goal against and so if you get wrapped up in perfection and you get wrapped up in the in the one play and you forget about making the next play it it becomes very difficult and so we try to eliminate that as much as possible it's not easy but we've and the best players i've been around are able to do that and that's what i that's where i've learned that from That's awesome, man. That's, that's really, really cool. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Um, I want to I switch a little bit here, and, and I want to talk to you about your time at Quinnipiac. Uh, you know, I obviously got the chance to, to coach against you when you were there and, and you see what Quinnipiac has, has become over the past decade or so going from a division two school to consistently in the tournament. Now um, I've obviously got a lot of insight from it, having coached with Benny who, who recruited and coached you <laughs> at Quinnipiac and, and who I worked with at Cornell for, for five years. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, it, it goes back to another conversation that we had and it was in Florida. I distinctly remember the conversation because one of the things that I used to do when we would go down for the, um, you know, the college coaches convention is I was, I would find somebody that won and ask them why, like, what was it about this team specifically that allowed you guys to have all of this success? And there's two conversations that really stick out in my mind. The first one was with Rick Bennett, the year that they won in union when they won the national championship. I was like, Hey Rick, like, what was it? And, and he, he, Rick, as you know, straight to the point, he's like three things leadership, goaltending, and special teams. That's why we won. We spent a lot of time on leadership. We spent, our goalies were really good. Thank you, Tapper, who is now your assistant coach as well. And, uh, and, and special teams, they, they had some good players and and they were unreal on power play and penalty. I was like, that's why we won. And, um, you know, then, then having the chance to talk to you and and asking you about, I, I think it was the year that you went to the national championship game. I said, what was it about this group? And you, you told me a story that I'll never forget. And, and Cash, I literally say this in every single one of my team building events that I do with, with the teams that I do. And you go, this is why we won. We're playing at Yale. And Yale and Quinnipiac, for people that don't know, are huge rivals. You guys are, what, seven minutes apart or seven miles yeah. apart? Like yeah, it's, right on the road, yep. Yeah, and the, the crowd's packed and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, we're playing at Yale. We go down 3 nothing in the first, like, five, six minutes of the game. And, you know, usually when that happens, coaches kind of go crazy. Some throw the clipboard or whatever. You go nuts on your guys or whatever. And you guys called a timeout, brought everybody in, and you look down your bench, and what do you see? You see, like, chins up, great body language. You see your leaders taking control of the bench and being like, hey, we still got 55 minutes. No problem. We got this game. Like, this is no big deal. And, like, you guys didn't even have to coach. You guys were sitting there. You empowered your leaders to, to take control and take ownership of what was going on. And you were like, dude, that's why we won. Like we had awesome leaders. We let them do their thing. And like, that's, that's what it was. And obviously there, there's a big recruiting perspective to that where you have to bring in the right kids and, and kids with some moral fabric that have some leadership in their DNA. But I wanted to ask you like, you know, and this is a consistent with Quinnipiac. I feel like you guys are always churning out leaders all the time, all the time, all the time. Is that something that you guys talk about as a coaching staff? Is that something you guys talking about in, in the recruiting room? You know, is there something that you guys do to help develop these guys to be leaders from freshmen to, to getting up to the seniors? Um, I just, it was a story that really, really stuck with me kind of like the other one. And I wanted to ask you about the leadership perspective there. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good question. And as I've kind of, like been away from you know Quinnipiac for seven years now, right? I was so entrenched in it for so long. 
and I take a step back and I, I look back at the teams I was I was fortunate to be a part of um and then now as we're now we play against them right you're you're watching them that's never fun it's <laughs> only so similar, similarities um i think the recruiting uh ran has always put a priority on on character um and character is kind of a, a funny word like character doesn't mean um for all students and <laughs> help grandmas cross the road and character in in the in the i think the hockey sense is you and, and then competitiveness are those two things like they need to go hand in hand and it's the same thing we're needs to be our baseline at Dartmouth right now and what we're recruiting and, and what that does is um you find kids that whether you're down six or up six when they're playing junior hockey they still back check they still eat a puck um they still put their arm around a teammate when a teammate struggles um you find those kids that love to compete and then what happens is if that's your baseline, then that kid, whether he's your 13th forward, if he has character along with competitiveness, he is going to grind to become your 12th, your 10th, maybe your eighth, right? If he's your third goalie, that kid's going to work every day to make your teammates better and be the second. And if he's your best player, which on those, that 2013 team told was Connor and Kellen Jones, and they're the two that completely flipped the program. Unbelievable. Not even close. Benny says the that's, same thing. Yeah. That's Benny. And, and Benny did a great job of, of getting those guys. Um, but they were so dang competitive in every day. And I think that that was an eye opener for our staff, like me and Billy and Rand when we got around them, because they still had to learn um, the college game and it didn't happen freshman year. It wasn't easy but we saw like every day they challenged each other and because they were doing it and they didn't cut corners, they also challenged their teammates and that's okay. Like it's okay to challenge your teammates. Like that's internal competition is healthy. Um, and then when the practice is done, you, you go hug each other and you go hang out with each other and it's not, there's nothing personal about it. And I think it's, the, it's recruiting those kids and then creating an environment for internal competition where it's built around respect but it's every day in the weight room and every day at the rink, you know, you're going to compete. And what happens is if there's anybody that doesn't fit that mold, they, they kind of weed themselves out. And, but the majority of kids do fit it and they just get better and better and better. And all of a sudden you're a junior or a senior and you're just like, this is what we do. Like, this is not even a, you embrace it. Like you enjoy yeah. it. You know, I, I talked to Bon Giovanni, uh, Quinnipiac's captain there this year. And it was like, it was like talking to Connor Jones 10 years earlier. To be 100% honest with you, it was a, you know, I give Rand and, and now Joe and Corbs, but that's, um, it's been a pretty cool process where Quinnipiac has gone, where they are. I can't wait to kick their ass next year, but it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a, credit, it's a credit to that program, no doubt. It's so funny you mentioned the Jones twins and, you know, I had a similar experience at Cornell as a player where we had twins on our team, Cam and Chris Abbott, who are absolutely killing it out in the Swedish elite league. Uh, Cam is the head coach and, and uh, Chris is a GM and they're just absolute, like they have one of the best programs over there now. And they coached more cider the year before, and they're getting guys, you know, all the time because they're doing a good job developing, but there's, it's the same way. It's, it's all centered around competitiveness. I distinctly remember cash my first day at Cornell. We didn't even have a skate schedule, but we're like, Hey, everybody's in let's freaking skate or whatever. And I'm like, all right. And so we're all skating. It's, it's, you know, I'm expecting a shinny skate. Right. I'm expecting like, uh, you know, four on four, just kind of using your skill or whatever. It's 
it's August at this point, right? And the puck gets chipped into a corner and Cam and Chris Abbott go and they start an absolute rugby scrum. I still remember it vividly right by the Zamboni doors at Cornell. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there on the bench and then I look over and like, the other guys on the bench are like, yeah, get them. Like, ah, like, oh, no. and I'm like, man, like, this is just different. This is just different. You know, we won the ECAC that year. We were a goal away from the frozen four, same thing the next year. And the Abbott boys were, were juniors that first year, seniors the next year. And they weren't the most talented people in that class or the team. Chris was our fourth line center and Cam was our third line left winger. And they went on to have unbelievable careers over in Sweden and, and did so good for themselves. And when they graduated, like we graduated some highly skilled players that year, like a Matt Molson, for instance, our biggest loss was Cam and Chris Abbott because of what they brought every single day to practice and to the locker room. And that just competitive spirit that was so, so, so contagious for everybody else. Like you were an outcast almost if you couldn't live up to that level. And honestly, and, and I talk with Rass about this, you know, you know, Rass uh, from his time at Harvard. Now he's in Omaha. I did a lot of work with him this year here in Chicago. Like there's not a lot of that anymore. Like in, at the youth hockey level, just that, that ultimate competitiveness. And you always talk to kids about like, what can set yourself apart for a scout to want to really see you? Obviously, the, the skilled of the skilled of the skilled is going to stick out. But if you're not that skilled, which 90% of the people that are playing in hockey games, they aren't, you can set yourself apart by that competitive spirit. And we in the stands, like you, you said it, like Connor and Kellen Jones were the reason that you guys made it to the national championship. Their, their resiliency, their competitiveness. I'm sitting here talking about a story about a third line left winger and a, and a fourth line center. That was the reason why Cornell was so, so good. For, for a couple different years and how big of a loss it was for us. Like, man, is that, are you seeing similar stuff that I am? And like, I just feel like kids, like we want to see, I want to see a rat out there. I want to see a pest. I want to see somebody really getting under somebody's skin. I want to see somebody like that doesn't lose a battle or at least goes in freaking a hundred percent trying every time. Like that's what sets teams apart. That's, I think that's what sets Quinnipiac apart. So bloody hard to play against. Like we talked to NAR before the game, the coach at Michigan, like get ready. <laughs> They're coming. Like you're going to have to compete. Um, and so like, it's just, uh, that competitiveness is just, it's amazing to see when you see it. Yeah. And I, I think it's a, like, I think it's there, but you, you have to, you have to create a, a program that, um, allows for it. And you have to have non-negotiables that a, a lot, when you bring in the right competitive kids, like you have to create an environment that allows them to be as competitive as they can and, and brings kids with them. And which means you can't um, you can't make excuses if there's more talented kids like like I'm assuming Shafe didn't let Matt Molson like do whatever he wants, but then because then the Abbott ones whatever they did it wouldn't matter if if Shafe was giving other guys free passes right like you have to be able to create that environment that encourages that competitive spirit on a daily basis again in a respectful manner and and I think that's maybe that's the issue like. I'll go back to my playing days. I'm sure our listeners really want to hear about you and I's playing days, but <laughs> my senior year at Quinnipiac, I was running a workout because we, it was a long time ago. We didn't have a strength coach. Players used to have to run it. And we had a freshman and I'll, and he turned out to be a pretty prominent, a pretty prominent hockey player. And 
uh, ton of points and blah, blah, blah. He was not doing the work. Like he was literally like hiding in the corner. We we're doing a circuit. I'm watching like, I mean, he hasn't moved yet. He hasn't moved yet. I'm like, what's this guy doing? I go over there and I, I kind of get after him a little bit. Dad, like right in the eyes, he goes, Cash, it's like his second week on campus. He goes, Cash, I've never scored a goal in the weight room. I'm not going to start this morning. And I was just like, okay, like, it was, <laughs> hey, game on, here we go. But that was, and that's why our Quinnipiac team was pretty good. And we finished fifth and we, we made it to the ECHE championship. We lost, but like all of a sudden, five years later, six years later, Connor and Kellen Jones come and are surrounded by some other really good players. And then there's this environment of, no, no, that, that kid would not have survived that team. Like he would not have, because the environment had, had changed. Um, and that's what I think elite programs do. I, I'm, I think Cornell probably does that outside looking in. Uh, certainly Quinnipiac does and, and what we're trying to build up in Hanover. Yeah. The environment of competitiveness is, is such an important thing. Like I, I try and every, even like passing drills, like people would call them flow drills, warm up drills, whatever you want to call them. I try to have a score, you know, like, all right, uh, I'm going to count how many times you miss a pass and the team that missed, like misses the least amount of passes yeah. is going to win. And the other team's going to have to skate. Um, yeah. We, we start every practice this year with a battle drill. And that was kind of actually, I love my team this year. That was driven by them. They wanted that. <laughs> you can tell that practice was just different when we started with some skill stuff versus starting with the battle. And, and so we did that. And so, you know, how would you, how would you advise, how would you give some advice to some, some coaches out there to, to try and create that competitive environment um, aside from maybe like, you know, obviously recruiting some of these good players that, that just bring it out. I think that, I think non-negotiables you have to have in your program because that allows you to um, coach with accountability to one through 20 on your team, one at college level, one through 28. Right. Yeah. So if you don't block a shot, it doesn't matter if you're an all American or not an all American, you're going to be held accountable to that. If you don't track all the way back every time, all-American, not all-American, you'll be held accountable to that. And all of a sudden when um, you're, you're this, there's a standard one through 28 on a college roster, now all of a sudden like there's guys are like, okay, like maybe not everything is equal. Like it's not equal playing time, equal amount of games, but there's, there's a kind of a fairness about how, how this staff goes about it. And the expectation is real. It's real for all of us. The, the work expectation is the same. Um, and so I think that, that encourages it. I think the other thing, which, which we did this year is to talk about Rick Bennett and Tapper. So we're struggling, like we're, we're losing games. We ended up with 14, one goal losses this year. Um, well, they weren't all one goal because of empty netters, but you take the empty. Yeah. Netters. Yeah. 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 So we're in a bunch of these games and we're just not, we're not winning. And, and, uh, at, right after Christmas, Tapper's like, I got an idea. I go, yeah. Okay. What, what's that? He's like, well, at union, we had choice games, like winning's a choice. Like you make a, you make a choice whether you want to win or not. And so we went, um, we probably went three straight weeks where every single day we did a choice game and it was a small area game. It was something different every time. Um, and the winners, nothing, the losers skated. And basically we're like, you guys choose, you guys choose to win um, or not to win. And it was a, like, it was a legit skate or legit. Like you had to put legit work in if you lost. And all of a sudden, what happened was the, the intensity of those games was th once they figured out like, oh, okay, this isn't going away, the intensity was through the roof. And then what happened was after that game was over with, 
the rest of practice was elevated because all of a sudden there's some adrenaline and some emotion and some, some purpose to practice. Um, and then we got away from it because we got into, we had some like three game weeks with COVID and, um, and it was funny going into the playoffs we had our captain, Harry Markell come, who was a great captain. And, um, or we were just going to do, we do this three on three neutral zone game. Like we do a, a decent amount. And all of a sudden Harry goes, choice game today, boys. Like didn't ask me, didn't say like, didn't like, he just was like playoffs, choice game. And, and the, and there was no, actually, I'm sure there are some grumblings, like after the first couple of days, like, like what's going on with these coaches, but towards the end, it just became part of our identity and guys like embraced it. And there was no, like during the skate complaining or like, it, it was awesome. Like you can't do it every day for the whole year. Um, and we might have even did it a little bit too long to start, but like, it was a great idea by Jason and it's something we'll keep, we'll keep going with. That's unreal, man. I, I love, love that. that. I was sitting with Nerado uh, watching the USA um, 40 man camp for uh, next year. And he was talking about the exact same thing that Toph was saying. He was like, I, he's like, yeah, this trailer here, like, I'd love to see this be a battle and see who really wants it. He said that they love starting off drills with just a quick battle, just to see, you know, get the guys heads in it, get energy. And like Toph said, like something I always did as like a leader on all the teams I played on is I would just turn things into competitions, whether they were one with the coaches or not. I'd be like, all right, it's black versus white. Like, let's go. Like, lunch is on this or cappuccinos or whatever. You know, what's on the line, boys? Did and you just say cappuccinos? Did you hold on? Did you just say you played for cappuccinos? Maybe a macchiato, maybe a latte, <laughs> maybe like a nice pile <laughs> of red, a nice Chianti or cap. Yeah, you like, know, hey, you're playing in Europe. You know, you gotta you gotta live like they do. Ah, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, right. gotcha, gotcha. Um, Cash, I want to ask you about a couple of coaches that you worked with. Um, and so I want to ask, first I'll ask about Rand, you know, we had the opportunity to coach against you guys a lot we had some heated battles and some great games against you guys. And, uh, you know, like I you guys were just so freaking hard to play against at the end of the day, like what we're talking about the past 10 minutes or so that that's just that competitiveness, but you guys like, it, it just seemed like everybody was bought in. You talk about blocking shots, like forget about trying to get a shot freaking through from the point because <laughs> your, your wingers were, were unreal again in shot lanes. Like the F one was always right on the D like the way you guys played, especially your neutral zone. There was the, the gaps, like we were talking about earlier there, there's just no room out there, you know? So I, I wanted to ask you like, how does Rand kind of go about creating that kind of, of culture from, from his point of view, every, every coach is different. Every coach is authentic to themselves. What, what's kind of special about him that's allowed you guys to, to be so hard to play against and to have all of this success. And it's interesting too, because I'm similar in the fact that I got to play for and coach with my college coach and you're the same. You yeah. got to play for Rand and, and then coach with them. And you learn so much getting in the coach's room and, and getting behind the, the bench with them too. And the method to the madness. Um, what do you think has allowed him to, to really elevate that, that program to the next level? Yeah. I mean, as competitive as a human, as you're going to be around. So that, that you start with that, you know, I mean, he's, he got the job is, practiced at midnight. He made $4,000. He's a full-time history teacher, high school history teacher. Cause that's where the program was. And he just, he just competed his way to where it is right now. Um, and that you feel that like, you don't know, like you don't like him a lot of the times, um, as a player, um, <laughs> you feel his competitiveness. Um, and, and even on, on his staff, you, you feel it, but it's also like, you also know, like this guy's, in the battle with us. Like he's emotionally invested in this thing. Um, and then his work ethic, 
is is awesome. You know, with the work he puts in during the week uh, to um, have a plan. And then the third thing, which is non-negotiables. That, that's one thing I, I've really taken away from Rand. Like you take away from everybody you've been around and um, the, the, the competitiveness is, is, is natural to who he is, right? And the work ethic is, is natural. And I, I'd like to think I'm, I have those two things, but the non-negotiables is, is I, what I think separates him. And, you know, the example I, I used before when talking about Rand is would be Sam Annis, who was an All-American for us and, you know, undersized, so unbelievably skilled, uh, two-time All-American, like has loved the HL in scoring, I think. Incredible hockey player. But Sam, like same thing. If Sam didn't block a shot, he missed a shift. If Sam didn't back check, he missed a shift. Now, if Sam tried to make a play at the offensive blue line, and this is where I give Randall a lot of credit because he has he's also flexible um, and he and he adapts and he, he gets better and he's he's not stuck in his ways. Um, if Sam tried to make a play at the blue line, he didn't sit him for that. Cause he knew like you like that, he needs to get a little rope there. And he was okay with that. As long as Sam forechecked, as long as Sam blocked shots, as long as, long as Sam tracked back, well, then you know what? Sam, Sam needs some rope to, to be able to make plays. And he trusted Sam to do that. And he, there's that, there's a, there's a balance there um, that after 28 years, he, he's found a pretty good, he's found a pretty good um, uh, way to do it. But it's, again, I was with Bon Giovanni last summer. We, we actually went golfing. Uh, with an alumni event and uh, I brought up a drill and I was like you still do uh do this drill and he goes oh yeah I go Rand still grab you and move you six inches to the left he goes oh my god it drives me crazy like what's the big deal to six inches but it's like that's what makes Rand good man because it's it is detailed and he's competitive about it and like no if I want you to be here this is where I want you to be and um and then it just becomes part of the culture that's funny for as much beef as, as Shafe and Rand have or had or whatever, they, they sound very similar. <laughs> so. Oh yeah, of course. You, you can know that without me even knowing Shafe. You can like, yeah. of course they are. You know? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, the other guy that I wanted to ask you about is Todd Reardon, a good Chicago boy. He was the head coach in Washington when you were coaching with the Capitals. And I have two stories about him actually. One is, so he's from Chicago, played for Chicago Young Americans growing up, same youth organization that I played for. And he was playing out in Edmonton at the time. And the, I don't know if he was injured or like just getting out there later or whatever, but he, he practiced with our team. We had a Bantam team at the time and he came out and he skated with us. And as an NHLer, you know, he, he brought everybody in and was giving us some words of wisdom or whatever. And he goes, you want to know what the most important thing is for you guys, if you want to make it to the next level. And we're like, you know, eyes wide the NHL yeah, guy. yeah and he's like communicate and we were like what <laughs> he's like communicate you have to talk on the ice you have to make the game easier for your teammates who have the puck and he told a story about how his defensive partner in Edmonton at the time was Boris Moranov and Boris Moranov known to have a little bit of an ego known to be a little bit of a prick <laughs> and he would say that um, nothing would get Moranov so pissed off as if he was going back for a retrieval and you didn't talk to him. Like he would literally like ice you out and want to fight you if, yeah. if you didn't do that. And, and that always just kind of stuck with me. And, and the fact that we got to learn that lesson as, as 14 year olds, 
um, was just really, really cool. And, and so it's just, just a little neat story about him. But, you know, the other thing is I just put out a, a tweet on Instagram of him just a few nights ago where he drew up a face-off play in, in Pittsburgh on a, what was it a six on five? No, it was like five on three. I can't remember. It was a power play. Yeah, five on four, yep, power, five play. On four power play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he drew up the play. And then they executed it perfectly. Crosby over, or it went Gensel to Crosby over to Malkin behind the net, right out to Latang, and he scored. And it was great, you know, just the, the fact that they executed it. But for me, the special part of the clip was right after that, the camera panned over to the bench. And the boys were so freaking pumped and they were all given reared in like fist bumps and like he was all into it and he was so excited about it. And it just kind of seemed like the guys had his back a little bit and there was that camaraderie between the players and the coaches, which at the NHL level is of the utmost importance um yeah. for for how long of a season that is and, and how you have to hold them accountable and make every day not like groundhog day and stuff so i wanted to ask you about your your time in working with with todd and and how that was in in washington as well yeah i mean so todd i, I played for todd my second year pro and so oh wow talked, okay yeah so that's like um it was in wilkesbury he was the assistant and a lot of what i've my first year i had jimmy hughes which is like Luke and Quinn and Jack Hughes's father, and he was the best I, I ever worked with on on stick detail. I learned so much from that guy; it was, it was incredible. It was like I'd never played hockey in my life before. I played with him wow. with stick, and then my next year I got Todd, and like how we defend rushes and um, the habits and like the foundation. Like that was my second year in Wilkesbury. That's he had that. That's what he was doing, and I was um, I I had zero confidence. Like my rookie year in pro hockey, I was shattered. Like I went from all American, big fish, small pond, Quinnipiac. I go to pro hockey. I was healthy scratch. I think 35 games in the American league. I rookie year. I ended up playing seven. I played a lot of you in the coast. They didn't resign me. Like I was like, I went from the most confident co- hockey player in the world to the least confident and nothing to do with ability. And so Todd was kind of there to pick up the pieces and it was, it, it was a foundation. Um, and, and so, sorry. So I learned a lot from him, played from that year. And then we kind of went our separate ways. And then he's the one that called me um, randomly in August, 2016, I guess. And I was like, Hey, we need a guy to coach the D. I know you're doing a Quinnipiac stuff that I'm doing in, in Washington with the D. Are you interested? And I was like, man, I, don't, I wasn't looking to leave. I wasn't, I didn't apply. I wasn't, but I, I started to think about it and me and my wife and we didn't have kids yet and um, interviewed for it and, and got it. And so then I got to kind of work under him for two years when he was the assistant Washington running the D I was in, Hershey communicated a ton. Uh, they win the cup in 18 and then he gets promoted and, and he brings me up with them. I'm 35. They just won the cup. The seven D had won the cup the year before Brooks Orpik is three years older than me. I'm like, <laughs> I, I, they're raising the banner. My first game, they're raising the banner. I'm like, wow. Oh. I thought I was like, am I, am I supposed to be here? Like, I'm like <laughs> I should be at least 10 rows back and really in the upper, upper deck. So anyway, I learned a lot from, from Todd on the, on the habit based in the, in the foundation piece. He is um, uh, an elite hockey mind, like really, really sees it at a different level. Um, and then has the work to, to match that. Um, and then he, he can connect, like he connects with players. I think as an assistant, he's as, he's probably as good as there is, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, I think as a head coach, which I'm still finding that balance. It's not as easy to connect with 28 guys, or it's not as easy to connect 
if you have to send a guy to the minors or you have to, it's just different. Right. And I think that was one of his challenges as a head coach, but as an assistant, it's like, this guy's good. I've seen that, that clip that you showed, I'd already seen. And I, I, I've seen that more times than I, you can even imagine. Um, <laughs> you know what, the, the reason he connects with the players, and I don't think it has anything to do with the NHL. He connects with the players because they know he puts the work in and they know that he's earned their trust that the knowledge that they're giving, he's giving them, it comes from a prepared place yeah. and it's, and it's going to help them. And that's something I learned. Like nobody in Washington cared about my hockey background. Like nobody cared that I didn't play in the NHL. Nobody cared that I was 35. As long as they saw me work. And then I had to be so prepared because um, I had to earn their trust. Well, I needed like the day that John Carlson asked me a question, I need to have an answer. And it had to come from a place that I was prepared for. And they see right through the BS. Oh yeah. But if you do that, you're fine. And that's where, that's where Todd is. I mean, he's, he's really phenomenal, especially on the power play. He's, you know, he does a great job with that stuff. Very cool. Very cool. Well, one, one more question I have for you, Cash, you've had the opportunity to coach in college, coach the NHL, coach with some amazing people, coach some amazing players, play for some amazing coaches, but we always have to have our own little authentic spin on all the things we learn from everybody and, and take it in, in our own authentic way. But, you know, if you can go back on your experiences of, of, you know, all of the amazing ones that you've had, what do you think is the biggest thing that you have learned from all of that, that you take with you that can help make you the best coach that you could be? I think, it, I, I guess I think it goes back to what I said about the 16 year old making the decision. I think the thing I've, I've learned is that you need to be so true to your yourself and, and what your, what your core values are. Like you're, if I tried to coach the way Rand coached, I, I will, I will fail. Um, if I tried to be who Todd is or who uh, Jimmy Hughes is or who PK O'Hanley is or who any of those guys, like I, I, I know I'll fail. Cause I've been in those rooms where somebody gets put in a different role and they change who they are at their core. Um, and so I, 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 that's my, that's my biggest takeaway. And that's what uh, I try to get to every day is just maximizing who I am and being very authentic with that. And then asking our players to do the same thing. And if, if that's your, your base, if that's your core, then you'll handle, like I'll, then I'll grow and I'll develop and I'll get better and I'll handle adversity. Cause I tell our guys, like I have adversity at 38. I haven't, I always thought of the next, you got two kids and another on the way. Once I get to college, I'll figure it out. Once, <laughs> once I get to a, a pro contract, Oh, then, then life will be fine. Oh, now I'm going to, now I'll get a coaching job. Now I'll be good. Now, you know, Oh, if I'll become a head coach, like then things will sell down. It's like, no, there's it's still, it's just, still life and there's still challenges and so um i i spend a lot of times so it's not easy for me i spend a lot of time working at not worrying about what other people are saying or thinking or what getting wrapped up in where we finished this year at dartmouth versus where where other people finished um and when i don't get wrapped up in that i get i get so so dang excited about the future of this program and the the staff that i get to be around and where we're going I have so much belief in where we're going because of that. Um, but that I have to work at that. Like that, that doesn't come easy to me, but that's probably my, my biggest takeaway about, about my kind of my career and where I'm at. That's awesome. Yep. I love that, man. Such great advice, such, such hard advice at times, especially when you're in a pressure filled job and things like that. But yeah, I think the, 
the best coaches are true to who they are. They're not afraid to change. They're not afraid to be challenged in, in certain ways, but what you said about core values and being true to who you are, um, you know, that's, that's, and we've all erred on that. I think every coach ever has, you know, taken something that they've learned from somebody else and, and tried to do it that way and, and failed <laughs> miserably. That's a, that's a lesson you got to learn, but I think that's such great advice for f- forget just like coaches out there, just any human being <laughs> out there yeah. to, to have, you know? And so, uh, but Hey man, we appreciate your time here and uh, we wish you nothing but the best of luck up there at Dartmouth, except for when you're playing against uh, against the big red and uh hey man congrats you got two kids you got another one on the way you said what you said 34 weeks 36 weeks your wife's out right now i got a i got my my oldest turns five may 6th my youngest uh turns two uh april 6th so just a few days and then i'll have a i'll have another one here in about four weeks or we are four weeks so we are right in the same boat my man our our, so our your, your first one's a daughter right all, yeah, all three are going to be girls. I'm oh, so you and me are way too alike then because my oldest is turning five, April 25th. So we, uh, yeah, we're right in the thick of it. So any, anytime you need a freaking text late night, <laughs> putting the baby down, but, uh, Hey, this was I, awesome. I can't, I, I can't believe that you didn't have any Quinnipiac. I can't believe Andy man didn't get anything out of you. Well, we didn't, we didn't really go over your time at Quinnipiac. He, he told me that you are the worst Euchre player alive and that the boys all, all know that they don't want to be on your team and that you're easy money. <laughs> so he was, he was throwing some chirps. Ouch. Yeah, won't lie. Yeah. He was like, and that's easy how, money. and that's how, you know, Bex, like, that's how, you know, it's the complete opposite. Like that's how you know, <laughs> that I just absolutely kicked the shit out of, out of him <laughs> for three years. Um, and now that's, that's his payback. That's just insecurity by, by Andy man there. Yeah, and he, didn't, hey. and he, he didn't want to say it. He was reluctant. He's like, guys, oh, such a good guy. I'm like, give me something. Give me something. He's like, well, the boys go straight after him when he's playing cards because he's, he's, so he's too nice to bluff. He's so full of it. Mizey doesn't lie. Mizey's too good of a guy to lie. <laughs> hey, hey, Cash, now that we're on it, the conversation was great, so I didn't get to this, but um, obviously I worked with a guy who who knows you very, very well. We have a Benny, we have a Benny Sire Award. Uh, we, we don't have weddings anymore now, but when we had weddings, you know, when all your buddies get married, we have, we have the Benny Sire MVP Award for whoever had the best night because – he put on a couple of absolute clinics at some of our weddings early on. <laughs> and, so uh, Vex, you've met Benny, right? You, yeah. you know him a little bit. Like there is not a truer statement than what Cash just said about his wedding abilities. That's like, amazing. and you wouldn't expect it out of him yeah. at all. He had my wedding, he had the tie wrapped around his head. And then he had yeah. the, um, I forget what we even called it, but you know, outside the car dealerships that they have like the blown up guys. Boston, <laughs> yeah. he's like, the dance floor kind of clears. I'm like, what's going on? And I got Benny the tire on his head and he starts low and he starts like his Peter planted and he's doing the car dealership blow up man thing. Oh, it was, it was I've never seen it. It was awesome. It, the was, best, it was absolutely awesome. The best part is he's totally sober too. As he's doing it, maybe not totally, but uh, along those lines. Yeah. We, so we went to Mayo's wedding. What was it? Seven, eight, nine years ago now. And he was working in St. Lawrence at the time. And uh, the, the Cornell crew led by Benny and Laura uh, was out on the dance floor, just giving her. And I remember going back to the table and, and Greg Carvel, who was the head coach there at the time, he was like, you guys are something else. <laughs> just, just watching Benny. There's no greater human at a wedding than Benny Sire. Well, thanks so much. Best of luck with baby number three. 
And uh, yeah, keep doing a great job up there at Dartmouth with, with Tapper and, and Tibbs and uh, big things ahead up in Hanover for you guys. So best of luck and appreciate your time. Thanks sure. guys. Same to you guys. Keep this thing going. And if you need any help in the future with anything or getting players or any of my contacts, don't hesitate to reach out. So just uh, don't just take that to <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.